In the North Indian state of Uttar Pradesh is a place called Sarnath. Sarnath is the site where the Buddha delivered his first sermon after the Enlightenment. So that's where they say the Buddhist religion or the Buddhist path or the spiritual path of Buddhism was set in motion. Sarnath is one of those places that, while important to the Buddhist religion, to the Hindu locals it is not as significant. Lack of infrastructure, very dense populations, dilapidated structures, in the middle of all of that you've got this beautiful oasis. Mm. So how do you really work with that? And so as a site, remains fairly underdeveloped. This is Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Kieran Shindy. Kieran is the convener of the planning program at La Trobe University, and he has built his academic career studying the ins and outs of religious sites and tourism in India. The Buddha himself in the 6th century before Christ, we have those records where it says uh, Buddha before dying mentioned to one of his closest disciples named Ananda, saying that anyone who makes the journey to these four sites where I was born, mm-hmm. where I attend enlightenment, where I gave my first sermon, and today where I'm dying, if they make a journey to these places, they would attain moksha or salvation. Okay. So that's the reason why most Buddhist monks as a part of their practice, would visit all these four sites. Yeah, so a really big deal then. So where is it then? Sarnath is in uh, Uttar Pradesh, so it's the northern part of India. And the thing with Buddhist sites is because uh, one has to understand that Buddhism emerged when Hinduism was already in practice. So there are a lot of Hindu sites which were sacred, were also sacred to people who are followers of Buddhism, so they were kind of adding another layer to it. Mm. So most of the sites are in the kind of Hindu places, and therefore they call Hinduism and Buddhism as syncretic religions, so they build on to each other's thing. So Lumbini, where Buddha was born, born yeah. is in the upper part of Himalayas, which is present in Nepal, but it's the kind of flatter part of Nepal, not the Himalayan part of it, and from there wandered around towards the Bodhgaya. So that was near a Hindu site called Gaya, which is along a river. Yeah. So Bodh Gaya, where he then sat for meditation for years and he attained enlightenment. Mm. Then he moves a little more south and comes to this place called Sarnath, where he gives his first sermon. And then from there, he turns back to go towards Lumbini, his place where he's born, but he's been traversing in that region for almost close to 60 years. Okay. So there are a number of occasions where he's just traversing and preaching people and doing all of that. So on the journey back, he then comes very close to Lumbini, just about 100 kilometers, and that's the place where he died, Kushinagar. Okay. So Kushinagar and uh, Sarnath are part of what we call present-day Uttar Pradesh state, whereas Bodhgaya is in Bihar. Mm-hmm. another state in India, and Lumbini is in another country completely. So, Wow. So when you go to the site, what is Sarnath like? Well, Sarnath is, is a very quiet site, as, as uh, we would imagine. This is also what they see as a very somber site, because this is where you are talking about a religion establishment of a path which will eventually lead humankind to salvation and then get you out of your miseries and pain and all of that. So it's supposedly a very 
quaint, spiritually aligned site. Mm. And in reality, it is because uh, it's an archaeological park. So there's no real big temple of active living practice there. So it's all what we call handled by Archaeological Survey of India. So this is the way of Indian government to look after their archaeological sites. Now, Sarnath is an archaeological site because it has the stupas. It has got several ruins of structures that are dated back to Buddha and then later on to Ashoka, who actually built many of these sites. Yeah. It's a ticketed entry, so it's a fenced area because it's got very fragile ruins where you can see many layers of structures built over time. Mm. This is also the place where uh, the Ashoka Chakra, the national emblem of India, was uh, found, in a sense. It was on the Ashokan pillar, and then Indian leaders took that and made it as a part of a, the main yeah. emblem on our flag. The circle in the Indian flag is actually the Ashok Chakra's derived form. Yeah. Because it's a very fragile site, there is very limited activity that is allowed onto the site. Mm. So that's the reason why it really is very peaceful. It's also got beautiful landscape in terms of the natural overgrown trees and all of that. So site by itself is very beautiful and quaint, but it sits on the periphery of a very bustling neighborhood. Mm. So there is that contradiction. Okay, and from the point of view of an urban planner as you are, what do you see when you look at the site? You don't see necessarily the archaeological ruins or the spiritual side of it. You are looking at those as part of other things, aren't you? That's an interesting question. And this is something that keeps coming up to any researcher. You know, when do you become a believer and when do you become a researcher? Oh, well, look, I, I wasn't up for a deeper <laughs> meaningful, but if you... <laughs> but it, it, it does because, uh, you know, for 20-odd years, more than two decades, I've been working on cultural landscapes and sacred landscapes. Yeah. So it's quite challenging to not look at them in purely utilitarian ways. You have to think at the value that that landscape has for all the people. Yeah. And that's the reason why we are looking at it. Otherwise, if it was a part of any other suburban development, why would I look at it, mm -hmm. right? So... Yes, there are both sides of uh, that landscape that we look at as, as urban planners. So for me, when I look at that site, it's beautiful, magnificent archaeological park, nice landscape, otherwise very bustling neighborhood. Typical street layouts are very congested, narrow streets and all of that mm -hmm. in these tier three towns that we call them as urban hierarchy. But lack of infrastructure very dense populations, dilapidated structures. In the middle of all of that, you've got this beautiful oasis. Mm. So how do you really work with that? Then this other layer of visitor experience, then that's where I come in yeah. very strongly, is how are people going to experience this site? What is it that they are looking for and how do they navigate this experience? Okay, so you said that this is uh, on the pilgrimage site. Is yeah. Is there a high amount of visitation to this site? There is. There yeah. is a reasonably good number of people come to this site on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And this is where there are two or three ways of looking at it. There yeah. is one which is the Buddhist followers, the monks. So you would really find people in ochre robes and white robes and all of them trying to make the rounds of this site and going and visiting with a lot of uh, reverence and uh, offering prayers and all of that. But then you also have the other international curiosity-driven tourists, tourists yeah. who are looking at these sites from archaeological point. And then the third one, which is what we call the domestic tourists, mm -hmm. non-Buddhists. 
So they are looking at this site primarily as a recreational landscape. Mm. And that number is the dominant number. So really? almost 85 to 90% people who visit the site, these are the people from nearby towns. They're yeah. coming there on a Saturday, on a Sunday to spend a good half day. And then they will package this with some another site nearby or something. Uh, like a bus tour group or something? Bus tour group or more so nowadays with private cars. Yeah, so a lot yeah. of cars coming in. So suddenly what you now see is against the backdrop of this nice quaint landscape, you've got this whole bus of you know vehicles coming in and coming out and mm. making all sorts of sounds, pollution, all of that. So you have to constantly make sure that this landscape serves the purposes of all these visitors yeah. besides its core spiritual value. Okay. Crucially, which we haven't mentioned yet, this site does not have UNESCO status, yeah. which seems really strange to me. So can you talk me through that? In a way, you could say it's a bureaucratic process. It's an international bureaucratic process where you basically say that this site is really important. When you say you, it one of the local groups has to take that lead or someone has to take that lead and prepare a dossier. Okay. So that's called a UNESCO dossier, yeah. uh, in which you highlight why you think this place is important against a certain criteria laid out by UNESCO. Mm. So there are, I think, six criteria, and uh, you need to have at least two or three covered into it. So universal value of heritage, architectural marvel, architectural significance. So there's a number of these. With Sarnath, the motivating factor is that two other sites are already listed at UNESCO. So Lumbini is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Yes. And then Bodh Gaya, which is the place where he attained enlightenment, the actual enlightenment, that's also UNESCO listed. Okay, yeah. Uh, the main temple, the Mahabodhi Temple, but it's got a number of criteria on which it sits. So the logical thing was the third site where he delivered his sermons should also become a place because that's where a religion was born in a sense. Yes, plus he has said these are the sites that's you need right, to visit. Yeah, yeah. Then there is also this architectural marvel of the stupas, the structures that commemorate Buddhas and mm. all of that. So that was the primary reason that uh, led to this idea of listing Sarnath also as a UNESCO site, right? Now, while Lumbini has its own Lumbini Development Trust, Bodhgaya has its own... Uh, administrative structure, Sarnath, unfortunately, does not have that. It is a suburb in the outlying areas northeast of Banaras, Varanasi, or Kashi, which mm. is the most significant Hindu site in the Hindu psyche. Right. So Sarnath is one little area or a settlement on the outskirts of Banaras, or Varanasi, as we call, and Varanasi has its municipal department or municipality there is no organization within Sarnath itself that can actually do that nomination because it's a very small place. Interesting, right? yeah. So they have to rely on people from Varanasi or some other organizations to list that. Or it could be done by International Buddhist Association or you know any organization could do it. But what it requires is, is there a sound management system to mm. look after that site once the label is given? Are you saying that the sound management system is otherwise occupied with other concerns? Yes. For example, Banaras has also been eyeing its place on the World Heritage Site, and it's still not got in there. It hasn't got it either? No. Okay. So it's kind of a poor cousin. So you've got, there's a Buddhist site and there's a Hindu site, 
Now, if you are in a Hindu-dominated area, who's going to win? I mean, there's no guesses uh, there. Yeah, right? yeah, okay. So the focus has been on Banaras, and that focus has unfortunately then taken away the highlight from Sarnath. The other challenge is that Buddhist associations or any Buddhist followers are more concerned about Bodh Gaya because that's the place of enlightenment for almost close to 50, 60 years now. Yeah. So, you know, there is this whole unevenness within the circuit and we don't even talk about Kushinagar at all. So, you know, we're not even coming there where actually Buddha died. There are these uh, endogamous factors and exogamous factors, basically external and internal factors. Mm. So, internal factors is the dynamics of the place within itself and within the hierarchy of Buddhism and the external ones are, you know, how there's a competitor right next to it that's really not letting this happen. There's an unsurprising amount of politics involved Absolutely. in this. In fact, if you look at the history, because the civilization of India, the subcontinent has seen so many invasions, so many indigenous homegrown rulers. So each of them has brought in their layer of heritage, as we call it. Yes. So it's a very, very dense package. It's almost like, you know, puff pastry sheet, if you like, you know, everybody adding a different layer of pastry onto it, and each one of them has their unique flavors. Now, at a certain point of time in history, depends on what is the flavor of the year. Okay. A flavor of the year. And based on that, you can easily pick on one leaf out of that and say, this is our heritage. And the moment you say that, you then by default suppress the others. Okay. And the fact that it's a Buddhism site next to a Hindu site. Right. All right. So what does that mean then for Sarnath? I guess there's two elements to this. How has the lack of UNESCO status disadvantaged it now? And what could it gain if it had it? Yeah. I think the first question of disadvantage, there is no conclusive evidence, at least in, in my reading, that a UNESCO label would really give those kind of big spurt that you want in numbers or something because people don't care, honestly. It's already an established religious faith site that they would be visiting. It doesn't matter if you know a third-party international convention has said something about it. Yeah. It's the faith and that's what we all the time keep talking about. Look at the cognitive ways in which people understand these sites, right? So if it's not in their dominant faith system, then there is going to be a bit of a challenge. No matter how much you promote it, mm. it's still not going to appeal to you, right? The UNESCO label appeals to the international visitors because when they are searching for things, they are not so close to that faith. So having a UNESCO label then probably mediates that meaning for them. It's like, I need to be told that that's significant yeah. and worth stopping at. Right. For that, you need to have that international visitor to be driven by curiosity, driven by historicity, and not a normal kind of you know, leisure tourist. Mm. So my hunch is works, and I have not done any systematic research on whether a label can give you, and that's another project. It might give you an initial flip, like initial buoyancy, but if it cannot sustain within the internal structures, how are you going to manage it? Mm -hmm. That's a bigger problem, right? So international community wants to bring it to you. That's fine. But do we have capacity to sustain all the infrastructure that will come with that one-time kick? Yeah. So in that way, UNESCO label can be a one-time trigger that can lead to a lot of change. But if there is no capacity within the site, that label will have only a very tokenistic value. Yeah. How much does this sort of thinking then apply to different sites around India or even Asia? When you look at the kind of thinking that you've applied to Sarnath, what sort of lessons can you apply elsewhere, do you think? I think one of the key things is UNESCO label is great, no doubt. It 
can provide boost to some places which are already in vicinity of tourism circuits. See, nobody's going to go and spend two days trying to go and look for one site that they're... It could be good in terms of uh, providing some impetus, but there is no institutional setup for that site, then it's not really going to help, mm. right? But it can help if you already have some other tourism attractions in close vicinity, then you could do, oh yeah, I can actually do a little bit of a tour and you know promote this. But that's from tourism perspective because unfortunately now what we do see is heritage equal tourism equal to economy. And that's the kind of thing that we are talking about all the time, that economic generation through heritage. But what is important is, can heritage be valued on its own? And that comes through the local communities. Mm. The heritage has to be valued first by the local people, by themselves. Unless you've got a critical mass that feels associated with that heritage, no matter whatever you bring from the top, it's not going to help. So they have to develop that sense of belonging. So most important thing is, if you want to really put the UNESCO label to use or to the benefit, then you also need to have that grounds up activity a lot more. That's what Sarna tells us. Unless you've got real mobilization at the ground level mm. of saying, doesn't matter if it's Buddhist, but we know that this is of value to us. How can we really build onto that value? Then you rally that international support, then it will mobilize better. But somebody is not going to leave their business somewhere in you know, Zurich and come and do Buddhist stuff for you. Yeah, That's not going to happen. They can do it once, twice. But how are you going to sustain that? From what you've told me then, I don't see that realistically happening in, in Sarnath. So how do you think the site should be approached then? Or what do you think the site needs if not UNESCO listing? Well, I think the first and foremost thing is uh, mobilizing the local level support. And that could then go beyond Sarnath itself to better recognition within the Varanasi metro region or you know, large scale that this is important. That's first. Second, Sarnath is also a little bit lagging behind in terms of the international monasteries. Mm. For example, Bodh Gaya is very popular simply because you've got 150 plus monasteries that are built by the Thais, the Cambodians, the Vietnamese, the, all the Buddhist nations yeah. have got large-scale monasteries in Bodh Gaya that can provide services to people. The monks or the Buddhist followership will come there, stay there, do their activities, rituals, and enlivening the site. So even though it's archaeological, yeah. you are providing that active living support. Sarnath has a peculiar problem. As I said, it's a part of the archaeological park. So you can't even, by law, light a lamp or put an incense stick inside the site. Mm. So therefore, people are not going to spend much time there at all. They'd probably do a good circumambulation or walk around the site, pay their respect, do a couple of uh, hours of meditation and they go away. It's not the vibrant site that you're looking for. And if you don't have that vibrancy of people interacting with that site, it will remain an absolute mosaic on ground itself. In some ways, I think that sites are better off without that kind of associated infrastructure because it becomes a bit like a theme park if yeah. you go too much the other way and if you have people there hawking incense sticks and all yeah. those kind of things and, you know, come for the meditation, stay for the massage. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky balance yeah. that we all aspire for, particularly in religious sites, is you know, where does that religion finish and the recreation takes over or can we really balance that? So, for example, in this particular site, would there be some spaces where people have that ability to perform sort of faith-related rituals. Is there a Buddha sculpture in there? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there's none. Wow, yeah. Because it's an archaeological site. Right? Yeah. 
if you want to feel that connect, that's where spirituality and religious faith comes in. I'm a little deeper here, but mm. spirituality, you don't need a form, a physical form. You can connect because you've practiced it, right? But when you've got these hundreds and thousands of people coming, not everybody is spiritually aligned to the same level. They need to have that physical manifestation of the form that they want to bow down to and pay their respect and say that, you know, I've completed something here. So those opportunities are fewer in Sarnath. You need to enhance those opportunities. Otherwise, it'll be just a whole bunch of rocks that are in an archaeological site. Did you get something out of the site? Do you think it's, it's worth going to for people? Definitely it is, for a couple of reasons. I visited Sarnath immediately after Bodh Gaya, so I found the contrast quite striking. Bodh Gaya is where you're now talking about you know, what you're saying at the massage and the meditation part of it yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. So in Bodh Gaya, which is an isolated part of Bihar, which is what we call one of the lesser developed states in India, and you've got Thai curry being offered there by Thai entrepreneurs and uh, you can learn Japanese and Korean in that place where people are still struggling for primary education in Hindi language you know so there's a whole this dichotomy that you can see because then it has become almost like what we call the Disneyland of Buddhism because mm-hmm. you've got all these monasteries Sarnath is complete opposite when I went into the archaeological park I had a sense of peace absolute serenity because too much of consumerism or too much of market was not there so Banaras is what we call the most living city, the, you know, the full night thing that you see in Banaras, and therefore Sarnath could be only an, a distraction. That was Kieran Shindy, a senior lecturer of urban planning at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Asia Rising. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend and subscribe. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter, and you can also find us on LinkedIn. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.